and we praised our God for the fellowship that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are individuals who want to be cautious with our words and make sure that angry words are let them never. And so that we are individuals who do what we can to build each other up, to help each other, and to assist each other, and to set the example that will glorify our God and lead others to Christ, both when we come together on occasions like this and also individually on a daily basis when we are going about doing our business as Christians. Glad you're here tonight. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read just two or three verses here at the outset of our study in Hebrews chapter 12. We are so thankful for our visitors and for those that are here on a normal basis. You could have chosen to stay in home tonight and say, well, it's just too cold to get out or whatever the case may be. But it's warm here, not just because of the heat, but because of the warmth of love of Christ that we share together And there's no better place for you to be. We're thankful, especially to those of you that are from out of state or out of town or those new to the community for being with us. And we hope that we can be encouraging to you as well. If I were to tell you that we're going to come together tonight so that we can discipline one another, uh, that may cause you to say, well, maybe I don't want to show up tonight because Hebrews chapter 12 tells the old age truth that we do not generally enjoy discipline at the moment in which it occurs. Uh, We do not enjoy red and blue lights that flash behind us. Not that any of us have ever seen those lights behind us pulled over on the side of a busy highway, hoping that another member of the church doesn't drive by. Uh, You don't enjoy when your parents say, uh, because of what you have done, this is now what's going to occur as a punishment. You don't enjoy uh, a teacher getting after you or maybe a professor scolding you for a point that you made inappropriately in class, at least in his or her judgment. But when it comes to the church, like any organization or organism or institution, depending on the word that you want to use to describe the church, sometimes we've got to discipline one another. And that's true with every organization, organism, and institution that is ever present, whether it be a political country, whether it be a family gathering, or whether it be the church itself. And so I want to talk tonight about corrective church discipline. And I chose my title very particularly because I want us to begin by asking this basic question before we get to the three main questions which make up the the thrust of our study together tonight, and that is what it is that we mean by discipline. And I would suggest to you that there are two components of discipline, one that we spend most of the time talking about, which is going to be what we're talking about tonight, but the first part of discipline is an aspect of our lives that we don't think about maybe as often As others. And that is, when you think about discipline, there are two ways of thinking about it or looking at it. One of those is instructive. And so it would be true that regardless of what we talked about tonight, regardless of what passages that we read, what songs that we uh, communicated with one another, that it would be appropriate to leave and say, we practiced discipline tonight because we were instructed, because we were taught. We were made to understand the doctrine better or more appropriately. In Matthew chapter 28, the text says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
Practice discipline is what he's asking us to do. That instructive discipline. If you have to go a day or two or three without scolding your children and say, well, I didn't have to discipline my children, incorrect. You did discipline your children during those one, two, or three day periods because you were involved in the process of teaching them right from wrong, helping them understand the nature of what is good and what is not. But the second component of discipline is what we commonly refer to as corrective discipline. Corrective in a, in a, a punishment way or in a chastening way, or at the very least pointing out there needs to be some sort of change that occurs. And that's what is written about here in Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And then he goes and he quotes in verse 5 from the Old Testament, my son don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And I would submit to you, and one of the basic points that I would make at the outset of our study, that one form of discipline without the other is not only uh, doesn't work, it is really unfair. For me to correct you on something that you are not versed in or aware of may not be the fairest thing in the world. Now, the police officer will still say that ignorance is no excuse of the law, and there's truth in that as well. But we need to make sure that we are educated on God's word so that we can judge appropriately about, number one, how we are doing in service to God. And then we can be the kinds of helpful members in our fellowship who help each other. So there are three questions that we want to ask regarding corrective discipline. And it's a very basic outline tonight. Those of you that are following along, notice the the basic components of it. The first of those questions is why is corrective discipline needed in any organization and certainly in the church? And let us address that first and foremost for the next five or six minutes. I want us to start with this idea of sin, which is a problem that we all agree is a problem. And it reminds me of the good point that Carrie made in our Bible class this morning and and last Sunday morning. As we're talking about Romans, we're talking about a universal problem. That universal problem is not sickness, nor is it death. Uh, It is not poverty. It is not hunger. The universal problem of mankind is of sin. And it's something that affects pre-Christian individuals as much as post-Christian individuals. The church is a very special institution and is talked about in high regard. It is the most important institution. It's more important than any political organization. It's more important than any sports team that we may root for or any hobby that we may be a part of. The church is truly special. It is described, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5 as the bride of Christ. And those of you that have brides understand how important your wives are to you. My wife is so important to me, you would argue. And I don't want anything happening to her because she's a treasure in my life. And so the bride of Christ is the church. It is furthermore in Colossians chapter 1 referred to as the body of Christ and that he would take care of it, nourish it, and provide for it. And in Paul's letter to the young man Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 3 and verse 15, it is described as the pillar and the ground or the foundation of the truth. So the fact is, is the church is an important organism or organization or institution. What we are a part of when we are added to the Lord's church is not a denomination. 
It is not just a man-made organization where we said, let's create something that would be nice for all of us to get together once or twice a week to talk about our problems and study this book called the Bible. No, it is God-ordained that we are part of this organization called the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. When you think about that divine plan, and when you think about everything we said thus far, corrective discipline is a part of that plan. We won't read all eight or nine of those verses, but go back to verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. We want to be children of our father, and we want the blessings that come by having him as our parent. It requires us to be subject to the discipline of that parent. And the same is true with someone who is adopted into a family here or born uh, into a family here. Whatever the case may be, we are children of the parent and we are blessed as a result of that. And so when you look at this, you find so many different words that are used, chastening, disciplining, rebuking, correcting. They are mentioned some 10 times. And you go back to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25, you see where indeed this wouldn't matter because we are talking about the bride of Christ himself. Numerous other New Testament passages deal specifically with the subject itself. Well, that brings us to our second question. And the last two questions are the ones that really uh, are, the, are where we would have some consternation, potential disagreement, or at the very least some concern even among perhaps those who are here tonight and that is what is the objective of the discipline and then how should that discipline occur are the balance of those questions I want to start with this second question and that is what is the objective of corrective church discipline when a situation arises and a brother in Christ is no longer faithful and we mark that brother and say that brother Smith is in error and until he uh, refuses uh, the ways of the world and comes back to the ways of him, we are noting him as unfaithful. He's not our enemy, to borrow from the inspired writer's words, but he is in error. And we are saying publicly, and we would say uh, privately, and we would say to someone who was asking about the integrity of the church, that person is not living as a faithful child of God. That may be because of his or her attendance. It may be because of his or her habits. It may be because of their choices. It may be because of uh, the way they're choosing to live. Let me suggest to you that first and foremost, the objective in church discipline is to make someone aware of his or her sin and cause them to be ashamed. Now, someone might say, well, well, that's kind of cruel that you want to make someone feel shame for the way that they are living. Well, we've all had the situation where we've had young children and you want them to get to a place where they are sorrowful for the action that they have undertaken and they are remorseful for the choice that they have made. And that comes from the godly sorrow that Paul talks about to the church at Corinth. Well, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just probably a couple of pages back in your Bibles in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, 
I want you to note that person and do not keep company with him so that he may be ashamed. And so that's the objective part of it is to say, we want this person to feel a sense of shame for what he or she has done. Furthermore, if you borrow from Romans chapter 16, verse 17, the word that is used there, depending on the version of the Bible you are utilizing, is the word note or mark, someone who is causing divisions. And divisions can be caused by things that are being taught inappropriately or by living a life that is contrary to the pattern that you know that, and we know based on scriptures we're supposed to keep. So it's not necessarily, well, I'm not teaching anything Well, if you're practicing something that is an error, that in and of itself is divisive and can cause more divisions in the broader community of the fellowship of the church. And it is important to note, it seems to me, borrowing from Acts chapter 5, that the world knows what is and what is not acceptable to God. Now, not always. When we get down to the finer points of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, people in the world won't understand what we're talking about necessarily. Although we've got to give people of the world credit enough to know that a vast majority of the things that you and I would look at and say, you can't act that way and still say, I'm a faithful member of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. Uh, most people in the world would say, yeah, I get that. As much as I may not agree with you, I agree with the concept that there has to be some limitations as to um, who you practice fellowship with and who you extend fellowship to. It is important so that false teachers are known to be false teachers. Turn back to Galatians chapter 2 to a passage that you are likely familiar with. Uh, If not, it's one that you ought to be familiar with. But in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were the circumcision. So uh, Peter would act a certain way on certain occasions and then act a different way on other occasions, uh, seemingly trying to save face or to uh, not offend anyone, but yet to, to honor the traditions of the men. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So incidentally, Verse 13 tells us that I may not be out teaching one particular thing, but my practice can give credence to someone else to practice something wrong as well. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, verse 14, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? I use this particular passage along with Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, because I think Titus helps give us a flavor uh, where Paul says that there are going to be many who are insubordinate, who are idle talkers and deceivers, especially to those who are of the circumcision, to those who come from the Jewish background. And then he goes on in verse 11 in very harsh and what seems to me stark language. If you look at verse 11 in the New King James Version, it says, whose mouths must be stopped because they subvert entire households and they teach things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So it's important for me to understand that false teachers need to be known as false teachers. 
So I hope to use just kind of a, a silly example that, uh, because I hope you would hope you would just see it as silly, that if if one of our brethren were to give a, a short five to ten minute talk or maybe a more lengthy 30 to 40 minute sermon, and in it begins espousing, uh, exposing these doctrines that he believes in his mind, and we all kind of look at each other and as a group are like, I think that's not right. Based on the scriptures, what he just said is not right. He, he just told us that baptism is not essential for salvation. And so we, we are kind people, and we would probably give that person the benefit of the doubt and maybe say, you know, you said something. I'm sure you meant it the wrong way. Baptism is essential for salvation. And then he says in his next public statement, no, I really meant to say that baptism is not essential for salvation. You don't need to be baptized. Baptism is just overrated. Now we have a clear issue at hand here, right? We, now we have to get involved. For us to say, well, that's, that's, that's his prerogative. No, it's not. We, as a fellowship of believers, have a responsibility to deal with someone who is teaching false doctrine, who has the power to persuade people in a similar fashion. Well, we also understand that the objective of corrective discipline is to bring back a sinner. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in part because we just recently studied it a few months back. Or in James chapter 5 where it says, those of you that go and rescue a person who is in sin and bring him back are saving a soul from hell or covering a multitude of sins. But instead what happened in the church of Corinth, as you're very familiar with there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is a situation where rather than saying this person is in sin, they said we're not going to ignore that this person is in sin. And instead we're actually going to uh, draw a big yellow circle around him and say, look, we are all about acceptance and all about tolerance to use words that are key in the 21st century of Western civilization. And so the objective is to bring back a sinner to Christ, to return him from his error of ways. The objective is not to make a person an enemy. That's not the bad guy. I say that because uh, someone mentioned this in a, in a short invitation talk or in a sermon sometime in the last 12 months, and I forget who it was, but I thought it was a good point. That in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 15, where we read just a couple of moments ago, it says, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So if uh, Brother Smith, poor Brother Smith gets picked on a lot. But if Brother Smith is at the local Walmart uh, and Brother Smith has been withdrawn from six months earlier, because of his refusal to change his lifestyle. And the elder said, we've got to mark this person uh, and note this person as being unfaithful to the Lord. So continue to pray for them and all, all the good stuff that we would otherwise say. And you see, Brother Smith, in the produce aisle, uh, you can't say, there's my enemy. I can't talk to him, right? So we, we understand that's a silly example. He's not our enemy, if anything, you want to talk to him because chances are you haven't talked to him as often as you may have otherwise talked to him. More about that in just a couple of moments. Uh, let me go a little bit further, and that is to say the objective is not to make uh, one no longer uh, a Christian or no, no longer Christians. Um, I, I, this may be a pet peeve of mine. Uh, maybe you would see it otherwise. And maybe you have a point uh, of view that's different than what I have. And that is someone said, well, Brother Smith, he used to be a Christian. I, I would make the argument that Brother Smith is still a Christian. Uh, 
he is an error. Um, if someone who is your estranged physical sibling who has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your parents, nothing to do with your fellow siblings, whatever, well, he used to be my sister. Well, uh, <laughs> these, <laughs> these days that... <laughs> She used to be my sister. He used to be my brother. No, they're still your sister. They're still your brother. You get the point that I'm making? So they are our brother in error, and we need to identify them as such. And let me go a little bit further, because uh, especially if you have ever been a part of a smaller church in the absence of elders, um, if I were to ask for a show of hands, I don't think I'd be the only one to raise my hand. But I have been uh, accused of kicking someone out of the church before. And I see a few heads nodding yes that you've, you've been in that same boat as well where you had to practice some church discipline and you had a group of about eight or ten men and you didn't have the luxury of having two or three or four or five men to help you guide through that process. We are not about kicking someone out of the church. The last thing we want is for them to not be, quote, in the building. And so someone would want to say, what if Brother Smith walks into the building? You say, thank you for being here, Brother Smith. We are glad to see you. And we hope that this will be a, a turning point for you moving forward. It seems to me that it is very important that we know what the objectives are and what they are not in order to maintain the good reputation of the church. And that's why all this matters. Well, let me go to our third question. This is where I want to spend the rest of our time and the heart of our study. And that is how should corrective discipline occur? This is not a critique of how we do it here uh, because uh, individual congregations are going to have their own styles. Uh, their own elders are going to have their own uh, timetables. Uh, the shepherds will have their own choices that they have to make. And we pray that they will have the, the wisdom with which to make the best decisions possible. But let me suggest to you first, foremost, and very importantly, that corrective discipline has to always occur after instructional discipline. And that's why preaching and teaching and Bible classes and home studies and parents matter so very much so that the, the groundwork is formed, the foundation is laid so that by the time Brother Smith, who's 40-some years old, is withdrawn from, he can't say, well, I never knew what was right in the first place because his parents, because the shepherds, because local preachers, because the local Bible class teachers were working hard to help Brother Smith over the previous 30-some years of his upward trajectory in spiritual development. When a non-repentant Christian continues in his state, a congregation is, to borrow from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 or Romans chapter 16, note him and withdraw from him. That's not Church of Christ doctrine. That's not something that we came up with. Uh, our elders didn't sit down and have a long 12-hour meeting one day and say, what are we going to do with someone who is not faithful to the Lord? But rather, we just said, what do the scriptures teach? 2,000 years ago, this is what worked. And 2,000 years later, it still works. More about that in just a moment. And let me suggest to you also, because there has been claimed made to this over the years, that there be no respecting of persons in choosing who to withdraw from. Well, we can't withdraw from this particular person because uh, that person's, you know how much his parents give to the local church. Uh, or that person, 
uh, grandfather was an elder, uh, or that person's uh, father, uh, her father was a preacher or is a preacher or whatever the case may be. The fact is, as we know, there's no such thing as a respecter of persons with our Father in heaven, James 2, verse 9. Neither can there be with us. Now, let's get a little more practical as we draw our lesson to the final 10 or 15 minutes here. And that is to understand this, and that is to work correctly, there's, it seems to me, two key things that a local church must keep in mind. One of those is to work correctly. The entire congregation has got to withdraw and to work to make the person feel ashamed. Again, we're not making them feel like they are our enemy. You may say, well, that's a fine line. And there may be some judgment as to how you go about causing that person to feel shame. Sometimes it's the things that you say. Sometimes it's the things that you do not say. And let me break here for just a moment and say something that uh, may step on toes because it's something that I've got to work on as well. We get in our comfort zones as members of the Lord's church, especially in medium to larger size congregations where you've got 160 to 180 people, where you've got commonality with the people that sit on your pew, uh, people that are in your age group, whatever the case may be. And so you may not have a relationship with Brother Smith that you would otherwise enjoy because you are around your friends most of the time. And I use that term accommodatively because we're all friends. If you do not know Brother Smith and have a relationship with Brother Smith in the first place, it's going to be awful hard for you to have a relationship with him for him to feel differently from once you've withdrawn from him if you didn't have the relationship in the first place. That makes sense what I'm saying? Okay, I see heads nodding, yes, that's good. So the point being, if, if, if it's one thing if I've been here for three weeks and I never met Brother Smith, but if Brother Smith has been here for seven years or 40 years, as I referenced in our earlier example, I could have lots of opportunities and should avail myself of those opportunities to engage with him so that, in part, if he does grow weak, I can help him. And when I grow weak, he can help me. And there are brethren, brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ that I know for sure are actually working diligently on a week-to-week basis to do that just in this congregation, and they are to be commended for that. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that in order to work correctly, church members need to be consistent in their relationships with the person. One can't practice 1 Corinthians 5.11 while, while another does something different. The point being is I can't say, well, uh, I, I'm not going to engage with this person in a, in a physical way, a familial way, or friendly way but someone else may choose to do so. There is going to be some judgment as to where you draw the line. Um, But there has to be some consistency among the brethren, and we've got to lean heavily on our elders and ask them, what would you say in this situation? How would you approach this situation? Uh, And try to follow their guidance, it seems to me, while also being very prayerful about it. Let me go to a topic that is not pleasant for anyone, including myself. And I've I've very rarely have I ever talked about this, but I do from time to time just because it is uh, an issue that we all have to deal with. 
But complete and consistent corrective church discipline can be a challenge for local families. And chances are, uh, if it has not happened in your lifetime, uh, it will at some point in your lifetime that either you or someone you care about that's close to you, maybe a pew mate, maybe uh, one of your friends at church, that they have to have one of their family members dealt with in a way that, hey, I know it's your daughter. I, I know it's your son. I, I know it's your spouse. I know it's your child. I know it's your whatever the case may be. And there's got to be some sort of action. And the reason that we do this is I've not used the L word at all tonight. But the whole, what's the whole reason we're doing all of this? Because we love Actually, we did use the word in Hebrews chapter 12. God used the word. Whom he loves, he chastens. And just as much as you would scold your child after he runs across the street, and I think about uh, Max, if he steps out on the sidewalk, off the sidewalk on the street, we scold him. You do that with your dog as well, right? Say, don't do that, not until I tell you to, because it's not safe. Do that with a dog. Sometimes we do it with our dogs more than we do our children, maybe. Uh, maybe there's something to be said about that. Um, but I'm just kidding. Uh, but the point being is that we correct our loved ones because we don't want something bad happening to them. By nature, the fact is, is some relationships have to be maintained even if withdrawal has occurred. And you can't avoid that. I'm thinking about a situation where you've got a husband and a wife. If the husband is faithful and the wife is unfaithful and she is withdrawn from or she's noted from by the church, uh, he still has a relationship with her that is different than what we would have. And the complexities of that I would not wish on anyone. A parent of a young child or vice versa, young child and a parent. But let me suggest to you this. And this is where I may very well step on some toes and I make no apologies for doing so because I'm in the same boat as well. And that is if family members outside of the previous situations make exceptions and broad ones at that for their loved ones, it's impossible to teach shame. So there have to be some difficult choices that are sometimes made. It doesn't mean that you disown your child it doesn't mean that you disown your parent. It doesn't mean that you disown your spouse or, your, or a very close friend. We don't count them as an enemy, but we admonish them as a brother or a sister. It's ironic that we have some visitors here tonight, but I'm reminded of a story about a family member of someone present tonight that said after he or she had been withdrawn from, said to someone else, that was the exact thing that I needed. Because it forced me to come back and to do what I needed to do. And had people treated me like everything was okay and everything's hunky-dory and there's no need for me to repent, there's no need for me to change, I would have never made the changes that I otherwise knew that I needed to make in the first place. I think there's something in the Bible about that. That it works. This is what God has designed for us. When one is withdrawn from, there needs to be some sort of communication because there is still some admonishing to do. 
And again, there's got to be a level of judgment here when it comes to family members, when it comes to what we are doing and admonishing. How you choose to admonish may be different than someone else. It may mean that uh, like clockwork every month, you're writing that person saying, I'm still thinking about you. Uh, And there are people here tonight, I have no doubt, in fact, I know for sure whose hearts are breaking because of their children or because of their parents or because of their close loved ones who are not faithful to the Lord. And they once were. You know, it's one thing if you never sign up to serve Christ. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 2. But it's another thing once you do and you commit yourself to that cause and then you say, I, I, I quit. I don't want to continue this path anymore. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But it is a situation that we really deal with in a world today and in a spiritual world in which we exist. If there's no difference in a relationship before being disciplined, the sinner's not going to feel compelled to change. And let me suggest you two final points here before we close out here. And that is number one, corrective discipline must always be accompanied with lots of prayer. We cannot say, well, that person has been withdrawn from. I no longer have to pray about them. I mean, what a callous way of saying things. And I'm not suggesting that any of us would ever think that way but, or say that. But the fact is, is we sometimes forget about those people. And I want to publicly commend this congregation for uh, routinely when we have men leading public prayer, whether they voice the names of the individuals that we are praying about, we certainly in a very general way, and I think there's probably some, some appropriateness and uh, some carefulness with the way we go about this. We pray about those with physical needs, but we also pray about those more importantly with spiritual needs. I mean, it would be great if the people that we care about who have cancer and who are in hospitals and who are going through uh, convalescence, it'd be great if in the next two weeks, everyone was all better with a magic Band-Aid. But what would be really great is the people that we care about spiritually, if they were to come back on one Sunday, can you imagine what it would be like? Place to be in tears because that would be a real homecoming. And that's what we're fighting for. And that's what we're praying for. And let me suggest to you thirdly here, this final point, and that is corrective discipline must always be done in love and with the right motivation. Uh, we do not say, well, I sure hope you come back to church sometime because once you come back, I'm gonna let you have it. <laughs> Luke 15, the text is about a man who was in error who comes home and his father says, Thanks. Thanks for coming home. And that's what we want of those that are in error. And that's what I think, as much as we may not like to admit it, we would want if we were the ones in error. We would want someone to welcome us back for that particular cause as well. We must continue to learn and we must continue to correct those two aspects of discipline. And if that's something that you are working on tonight, congratulations, because you should be. We are all working on learning, and we are all working on correcting. And we are trying our very best to be the kinds of men and women that God would be pleased with. And it is true that, unfortunately, 
that some of the people that need to hear this message aren't here. I mean, the irony is, is the people that sometimes need to hear the message are the ones that aren't there in the first place. But yet, hopefully, it'll equip you and equip me with a greater sense of responsibility and a little bit of angst over trying to reach those who are in error and trying to help them to come back to the Lord. But it's possible that you're here tonight and you are not a Christian. You are not a part of the fellowship that we have sang about and that we've talked about over the course of our time together this evening. We would welcome the opportunity to welcome you in. Not that we are the ones who are the gatekeepers. The Lord does that. He'll add you to the church. But we would hope that you'll want to study with us and to study further to figure out what's necessary in order to become a Christian if you don't know enough already. If you do know enough, know enough to be baptized, have your sins washed away, having repented of your sins and confessed that Jesus is the Christ, we welcome that opportunity to help you. If you are a child of God and you are in error, and you know you're an heir. Maybe you're the only one that knows you're an heir. The Lord knows. And he will forgive you if you pray to him for forgiveness. But if you need help of brethren who will be there to assist you and to encourage you, let us know. While together we stand, while we sing. <laughs>